Okay, so the first question is from Mahendra from uh, from um, Mayapur, and he sent this in a few mm. few weeks ago, but there was not enough time. I don't think he's online right now, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it out, and then he can check it out later on. So he says, "I live in Mayapur, and I know devotees who require their children to chant a certain number of rounds of japa per day." And there's another group of children who take the initiative to chant because they are watching others chant, many of whom are still young children, and they chant fully mechanically only. Many parents do this with the best of intentions as if to generate positive samskars from having contact with the practice of japa since childhood. But on the other hand, taking into account the offenses of distracted chanting and the unconscious habit of chanting the holy names in like distractedly, automatically as adults as they do as children it's a little unclear but do you see what he's saying and that's not the whole I question kind of, yeah. so yeah basically saying that that habit of chanting uh distractedly as a child then carries on to adulthood and then he says how to proceed in this sense with the devotion devotional education of our children Would it be better to restrict Japa, Japa chanting while they are not yet mature enough to understand the deeper meaning of this practice? Well, it's an interesting Does question. Shamsundar, in their... Does Shamsundar has hmm? to have to uh, translate the question first? Okay, in Spanish. Okay. No, no, I've been translating all along as usual. Oh, okay, got okay. it. Okay. I steer your voice, Shamsundar. You too. Um, <laughs> my old friend. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting question, and um, I don't know if uh, uh, there, there are different ways to answer it, and and different. Uh, um, I would say that uh, my two gurus, Srila Prabhupada and Srila Siddhartha answered it in different ways, in one sense. And um, to give an example. Uh, Prabhupada, very Nityananda-esque, if you will, <laughs> would, uh, encourage everybody to chant, um, and, and be happy, right? And uh, emphasize things like even chanting in your sleep is good, uh, you know, which are statements that are, that are found in the, in the scriptures. And so he would, uh, for example, have us, uh, Engage new devotees who weren't initiated in chanting japa until they could chant 16 rounds, uh, and be recommended for initiation. And, um, um, Pujapat Marsh, on the other hand, as I recall, would not, uh, allow devotees to chant uh, japa until they got initiated and they got the mala, you would call it a guru mala, to get the mala from the guru, to discourage the idea of going to the store, buying a mala and chanting and circumventing consciously or unconsciously the guru with whose blessing we should chant and without which, and if without which means ignoring necessity for the guru constitutes an offense to the name. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
that, that was his uh, policy. Prabhupada seemed to be able to digest whatever uh, downside there, there might be from the other perspective. So both of my gurus have kind of, um, by their example, answered that question in what appears to be uh, opposite uh, ways. Pujapachita Maharaj would enchant everyone, would, would encourage, on the other hand, everyone to do kirtan um, and so forth. But the mala has come from the guru, guru, ma, guru mala, not, it's not a, not a market uh, mala, if you will. So, um, now in the case of Pujapachita Maharaj, just to say he's emphasized a certain point, Prabhupada emphasized the same point in that, um, uh, he would encourage everyone to chant and he would chant on beads and so forth, but he wouldn't give initiation until they had been recommended in a certain point, uh, and, and they had been chanting 16 rounds and sometimes it was for like six months or, or something like that. So it was clear, I would say, anyway, in Prabhupada's ISKCON, um, at, in, in the time that I was there, um, that you needed a guru and, uh, that you were, uh, trying to, uh, secure that grace and action. Um, so the principle that Sridhar Maharaj was um, emphasizing was not uh, de-emphasized or lost, but they had different approaches to it. Uh, that doesn't entirely, I don't think, answer the question which relates to, to children uh, chanting, but to some extent it it it, it does. And um, otherwise, I would say that. Um, the, the, the best thing, first of all, for children, as far as raising them in Christian consciousness and having the hope or the desire that they would become uh, nice devotees, the best thing that parents can do, and uh, and which is essential, is that they, they personally set an example. And I do think that there is something to be said for an example set by parents for their own participation in Krishna consciousness that stands out to devotees, to, to, to their children. Uh, an example that, um, that can create an interest in the children, uh, by maintaining somewhat of a mystique, um, about it. This is, this is for adults, um, um, this kind of practice, um, it, rather than the opposite of that, you know, getting them to do it right away and so on and so forth. Uh, because children, uh, you know, they, they, if the parents have other habits like smoking or drinking or something like that, you don't let the kids do it. The kids will want to do it. <laughs> uh, when, when they start to grow older, they want to, the forbidden fruit is always uh, a little more tasty. If you will. <laughs> so if the forbidden fruit is something like chanting japa on beads, um, it, 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 it might have, you know, a very positive, um, effect. So I'm just thinking of that as, as we speak, but I think that overall that, 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 um, if the parents set a good example, well, that, that's going to carry the most of the day for, for the most part. Um, and when the children will come around to identifying with that example, well, it's hard to say, but uh, I think that they do will ultimately respect my parents. This they weren't hypocritical about. They weren't telling me to do something that I was 
what they themselves weren't doing. Uh, if there's no disconnect there between what they do and what they say and tell the children that that just goes a really long um, way. So the main emphasis should be the example. And I think that, um, you know, uh, as I say, restraining them from some uh, some uh, practices and so forth. After all, we do that with regard to uh, aspects of deity worship and, and so on. It may have some uh, merit. That said, I think it's also possible we go the other way. Uh, if that example is there on the part of the parents, and you stress to the children, you know, what the chanting is and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the fact that you've gotten them all from the guru and you're chanting now, hopefully you'll also be initiated when it has, at which time, you know, you'll have a blessing and so on and so forth. So I think it's just a question of how you um, educate them and, and the less that it's a blind type of approach, if you will, this chanting works, get them to chant somehow or other without explaining anything. Uh, that's probably uh, uh, better. Plenty of children seem to really love Krishna and their parents think they're great devotees in their childhood, playing with deities as dolls and so forth, only to hit adolescence and just, and, and forget it all together, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, <laughs> that's, at least in, in, in the West, that's quite common. Now, Mahendra, um, my disciple there lives with Four children and his good wife in Mayapur, and um, of course that's a very beautiful and conducive setting, um, and it very favorable favorable uh, environment with Mahendra's help. I'm hoping to get a small parcel over there in Albadweep for myself to spend sometimes uh, some months of the year ongoing as as, uh, as I. A little older here, uh, but um, it's hard to do uh, too much uh, wrong or damage in such a place by encouraging devotees to chant. So I, I think there's different ways to look at it, and um, parents need to uh, need to make that decision in, themselves. I hope that helps. Uh, Sajan has a follow-up question. Okay. Andravats Maharaj. Thank you. Um, was it Srila Prabhupada? I mean, I'm not a hundred percent clear on who was it originally who said um, there are no hard and fast rules for chanting the Hare Krishna Mahamantra. Was it Mahaprabhu? Was it Srila Prabhupada or someone else? Um, this is uh, a statement of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the second verse of Shikshastakam. He says, okay. Nam Nam Akari Bahuda. Okay. There are many names, they all have power, and that uh, one can do the, he actually says, Smaranam of Nam, which would be Japa, uh, and there are no rules. It can be done okay. at any time, at any okay. time. So, in re- what so, he means by that, I should say, I, I should say, what he means by that, there aren't rules for that type of nam smarnam of the holy name um, that that would um, uh, be 
uh, applicable to doing other types of mantra smarnam, like the Gopal mantra, for example, which begins with a seed, a beej, has an, a, an appeal to it, is in a dative case, uh, the names of the Lord within that mantra, and, and so forth. Um, so he's saying that the, that the japa, or the smarnam, of uh, of of nam, which would include the mamat, which only consists of names, um, would not be subject to the same rules and regulations that other types of mantra smarnam would. Hmm. Okay, so... There's also, there's a wonderful bhajan, I believe it may be from Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur, uh, perhaps, that says that the power of the name is, um, it's evident, it's transformative power, liberating power, uh, to bring salvation to one, um, is evident in the, especially in the cases of Persons like Valmiki and um, Ajamil. Do you uh, do you, do you recall a bhajan like that in our among our bhajan? I don't, I don't recall a particular bhajan, but the, but it's it's uh, it's uh, um, you know the statements speak for themselves. Um, Ajamil engaged in Namabas by calling his son Ryan and calling for his son right. at the time of death and the Vishnu Dutas uh, intervened and Ram Valmiki mm-hmm. Ramayana is said to have come out of chanting Mara, 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 Mara. Right, right, right. Valmiki was preoccupied with death. Mara means death and you chant Mara, Mara, Mara it turns into Rama, Rama, Rama. So. Right. But, so, so my point being that those are very, very encouraging and life-affirming, uh, if you will, uh, examples, whereas it seems as if later, um, I mean, even uh, even Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur's um, presentation mm-hmm. of the Ten Offenses to the Holy Name would seem to be a little less encouraging, a little... A little more um, like no, here here are the ten hard and fast rules for chanting the holy name, and then of course there is supplementary books written by devotees uh, about the technical details which are absolutely required for chanting for getting the benefits from the holy name, and so these things there seems to be a little bit of a, a mixed message, if you will. There, in regard to yeah, I could comment on that. Please, thank you. First of all, I think uh, extreme statements, as if you will, as to the efficacy of the name, even if it's chanted um, uh, uh, unconsciously or by uh, thinking you're calling your son rather than actually calling <laughs> on God. These statements um, speak about an aspect of the name's efficacy, its capacity, that is, to give mukti, even if it's chanted uh, in such ways. Now, mukti is is far from the the full benefit that one can get from the name, um, which is, that benefit, uh, praying. So, um, 
The statements are made in one sense to say what to speak of. If you chant the name inattentively, you can get mukti. That is meant to inspire us to think, well, if I would chant attentively, what can I get from that? <laughs> and if there are things that I can do that would be would be more conducive, that would help me to mine the gem of the holy name and its 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 riches, its wealth, what can I do? So, so for example, if I find out something is an offense to the name, oh well, that's very valuable information, and I want, would like to incorporate that into my um, uh, life. Um, so the ten offenses. With regard to that, Bhakti Vinod Thakur said, "Well, without some bandhagyan, just chanting, you're 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 not going to get preem, or you're not going to make." Uh, much advancement because that was his experience in Bengal. All kinds of people were chanting, but they didn't have the proper uh, understanding of the name, the theology that underlied, at least in a, in a general sense. So, for example, they thought, we chant Krishna Nam, we'll chant Kali Nam, there'll be no difference. Hmm? Which is uh, an offense to the name. So, w- without that kind of basic Sambandagyan, I'm not talking about super, you know, uh, uh, theological um, insights into the details of the underlying philosophy and theology of Gaudiya Vaishnavism in a broad sense. Well, without Sambandagyan, you don't know that there's a difference, for example, between Krishnanam and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ganeshnam. Mm-hmm. And so you would you would make what amounts to an offense to the name by thinking, you know, chant one or chant the other. And you might be chanting one or the other thing. Either one will give me mukti, which is what I want. So without a, a good siksha mm-hmm. as to um, these offenses, for example, one subject to committing them and getting in the way, I don't think that contradicts what Mahaprabhu said, there are no hard and fast rules to chanting. One can chant at any time, any place, under any circumstances and get a benefit. But if you want the full benefit, there are things that you could know and add to your life and your practice that would uh, facilitate that ultimate benefit or uh, wealth of the name, which is praying, um, uh, coming out and 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 and, and one uh, attaining it oneself. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and otherwise, uh, that you could chant any place, any time, anywhere, under any circumstance. There are no rules for chanting. That's one thing. But um, I don't think it's a rule that you shouldn't offend the name. <laughs> but I, but it's but it's obvious, right? That if one yeah. thing is chanting, one one thing is one thing is chanting the name. The other thing is going against the name. <laughs> so if we go, if we go against the name, then you know and defend him, that's another thing. So to become aware of those, and, and you know they're not that. Uh, um, um, it, it doesn't take a big brain to you know assimilate the, what the offenses are and then uh, uh, try to avoid them. the name. After all, is not different from Krishna. So if we can offend Krishna, then uh, we could offend his name. Although it might be a little harder to do so. 
given the, the generous nature of the name, been compared to the named Krishna himself. Well, Krishna, <laughs> it's not different, but it is different. <laughs> right, right. I so, understand. I understand. Does that help? Oh, yes, yes. I, 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 another kind of question came up just based on what you just so beautifully shared. Um, I seem to recall uh, Prabhupada, uh, he actually chanted a, a small amount of um, King Kula Shekhar's prayers, and uh, Guru Maharaj uh, uh, actually was very, very fond of Jimunacharya, and put uh, some verses from him into his Prapana Jivanamrita book. Um, but uh, in my study of the Alwars and the uh, the predecessors of uh, Ramanujacharya, it seems that there was not there were there was not some dichotomy or kind of polarity between mukti and prem, but there seems to there seems to be a very large dichotomy between mukti and prem in in like contempt, more contemporary Gaudiya Vaishnavism, or I should say Gaudiya well, Vaishnavism, because that was South Indian Vaishnavism. Yeah, I don't think it's contemporary Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but I think it's Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Jiva Goswami right. in Bhaktarasamrita Sindhu in his commentary, you know, makes the point that uh, there are different types of mukti. Um, and there's, there, there's, for example, mukti in which the, um, attaining the, the salokya, the, the mukti of living on the same planet with God or having the same opulence as God having a form like that of God. There's a type of mukti that one can attain in which that is actually the goal of the practitioner. So one sets as its goal, makes a sankalpa, commitment, this is what I want to attain. I want to live on the same planet. I want to attain salokya. I want to live in God's planet. Mm-hmm. And, and there are, there, there's a lot of things, benefits from doing that. Mm-hmm. So he wants those things. Mm-hmm. And then there are devotees in Vaikuntha who don't want those things. They only want praying for Narayan. And they accept those things because, well, that, 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 that goes along with the praying. So that these are two different types of mukti that are attained within, uh, Vaikuntha. Um, one which is praying focused, the other which is focused on, on the perks, I would say. You know, living in, <laughs> having a similar body, having a, living on the same planet, you know, and so forth. But then if he goes on to say, and then, and there are the devotees of Govinda, hmm? don't even want the frame of, of Vaikuntha. They want a frame that, the kind of frame that's unheard of in Vaikuntha, where there's only Dasya and Shantarasa, hmm? and Narayan is God. And the idea that you could wrestle with them, that's like, you know, you gotta be kidding me. That would be an offense. <laughs> that would be an, an offense. I think I'd go wrestle with the Ryan and he has four arms anyway. Of course, if I have four arms too, maybe I could be, no, an equal match. No, you, you can't think like that if right. I couldn't, right? right? So therefore it said that the, the Prem, the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is coming through Sankirtan and giving to the people, uh, access to of Golok, that's unheard of, even by Kanta. And that is the kind of praying that is, uh, 
qualitative, let's say, different or more intense than you find in Vaikuntha. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a it's a go to your point. I, th- I think it's a it's a pretty good point. I don't think the Ramanuja Sampradaya or the Madhva Sampradaya have any real sense about uh, you know, an abode beyond, if you will, awe and and reverence. Um, even Ayodhya is you know, you could become a das there. It's dasya bhakti like Hanuman. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Ram has parents. Um, has some has some brothers friends. It's a little different, but it's not that you can attain that necessarily. The attainment is all in Dasya Bhakti, but when you get to Goloka, it's another thing. Um, so I believe they they look at it more like we find in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, and I did Narayan sometimes shows this maybe on Janmastami, you know, the Narayan the, the Krishna Leela, and expands his own self as his own associates. But everybody else can can be entertained by that, find it charming, but they can't participate in it. Therefore, Gopal Kumar wasn't satisfied when he saw that in Vaikuntha. He went to go on to Goloka. Now, among the Alawars, uh, there are some um, who seem to uh, have an ambition like that of the queens of Dwarka. Hmm? Princess Andal. So I was thinking of researching that recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which 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 would be peculiar uh, in that, as I am saying here, it requires another loka. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't do that in Baikuntha. There's one Lakshmi there only. So if you want to become a queen, uh, now it might be that there that in Andal wanted to be, take a birth in the Prakat Lila of Krishna, you know, and from there attain Baikuntha and it's all Dasya Bhakti. I'd have to research that, and I'm not sure that would be easy to research. I have been thinking about it late, lately and how to research that. Best if I could talk with some somebody in the Ramanuja Sampradaya who's uh, um, an acharya there. I'm going to get this as, as an aside, an interesting topic. So, Goloker Premadan Haridam Sankirtan. Benediction of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And you know, it, uh, yeah, we, we seem suited for it, so it appeals to us. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you okay, so much. another question. Is there are two questions from Krishna Kanaya from Berlin? Okay, Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Thank you for your thank you for your recent letter and update on your um, <laughs> spiritual, you. social, marital, occupational. Everything life, I much uh, appreciated it, and I would encourage you in your um, present uh, situation in terms of the interfaith um, dialogue that you're you know, employed in. Yes, it's true, as you asked me in your letter, um, that in, at times I have um, uh, not um, uh, found interfaith dialogue to be that uh, meaningful. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't a place for it, and uh depends. It, it, for me, it may not be that useful for you, and for others, it may be. And, um, it, you know, it, it, there's a lot of common ground between the different traditions and so forth. And I think it's good. Bhakti Vinod Thakur did some interfaith, inter, interfaith uh, uh, work, if you will, just through his writing and saying things like, and in Christianity, we find 
Sakiras, the, the brotherhood, you know. But we don't find this Madhurya, you know. So he, uh, so he, he did this to try to put, uh, as I sometimes say, Gobi Vaishnavism on the stage with the world religion, so you can do that in your community there. Um, so I was going to write you an answer, but now I've answered. So I'm happy for you, and thank you for the for the update on your situation. So what are your questions this morning? Thank you. Hare Krishna. Um, so I have uh, two brief questions, but something that you mentioned now, I thank you for receiving my letter. And um, uh, you just said that, uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur said something that in Christianity you have Sakya, Ras? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a very, uh, he's speaking about it very broadly. One of the things emphasized, I think, in Christianity is brotherly love. Um, um, uh, and he might have had some reference to the, from the Bible, something like that. Um, whereas that there's, there's, there's no emphasis on, you know, romantic love having a divine, uh, characteristic. Uh, it reminds me when he, when he speaks, you know, very broadly, oh, in Christianity we find Sakya. I mean, he's not talking about it in a refined, Way that Rupa Goswami is that there has to be an object of, of 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 love that has the qualities that enable him to be an object of brotherly love or friendly love that you can interact with intimately. They're not showing that in Christianity, but there is an emphasis on brotherly love, and this reminds me of something I've written in my book, some of which I drew from C.S. Lewis, who is a Anglican theologian, um, very good one from times gone by. And um, um, he speaks about the virtues of brotherly love or friendly love um, and points out how, in a worldly sense, friendly love has an air or an aura of spirituality to it in comparison to the other forms of love. And I've written about this, but the implication is that, well, for example, uh, while romantic love and parental love have a biological basis to them, hmm? biologically, we, you know, we're inclined, if you're driven towards a uh, rom- romantic relationship and or a parental relationship. But friendly love is independent of that biological Necessity, if you will, and its independence is, is, is kind of, uh, gives it an aura of spirituality, but it's voluntary. It's not driven by nature alone as a must. So it has a, it's a different uh, character. And, um, while three is a crowd <laughs> in romantic love, in friendly love, you can have as many friends as you want. The more the merrier. Which is, would seem to be the nature of, of, of heaven, if you will. The more, the merrier. So, uh, he speaks along these lines and, um, and of the, uh, fact, for example, that comparison to other forms of love in, um, in brotherly love or friendly love, there's kind of a brutal honesty. You can't be brutally honest sometimes with your romantic partner. Um, or with your children, or even the teacher with the student. But in friendly love, it's like, hey, brother, this is where it's at, and I'm telling you 
because I'm your friend, you know. So all of these things uh, together uh, make a nice case for that amongst the types of love that we find in the world, is this friendly love has an aura of in spirituality to it. Another example that, uh, that uh, for example, that, that comes to mind for myself is that if romantic love is to endure in a marital, for example, relationship, which it would, would lead to a committed relationship, it has to turn into friendship for it to endure. Because the infatuation that it's based on initially will fade. And if it doesn't turn into friendly love, then one will just go chase after the infatuation, the illusion of infatuation somewhere else, somewhere else, somewhere else. And similarly in parental love, parental love has to mature into friendly love for it to be viable in the long term. Because at a certain point, when I'm 70, and my children are 50, well, they're adults. <laughs> and so the, the parents and the students will start to interact as friends then if they're to continue to have a relationship rather than me insisting, you're my son, you do what I want. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that, which is the, you know, the parental uh, expressions of, of love. So there's many ways that I brought out uh, studying Mr. Lewis and, and, and my own insights to make a case for the, that this, this spiritual love, the spiritual love in transcendence is best represented in this world in worldly friendly love because of these reasons. Now, I would make my case in my, my book and to go on from there, the question is, but is there any actual friendly love with God? And if there is, where would we look? And the answer is, well, we should look to India. Where there are many faces of God and correspondingly many approaches to love. And then I explain, uh, give me some examples from the Upanishads, Gita, and so forth of ideas uh, or, or instances in which, from a general point of view to a very specific point of view, this friendly love exists. Hmm? Uh, the, the specific point coming to ultimately the Bhagavatam and Krishna's playmates in Brudge, which is, of course, then, as I reveal what the book, the book is about. So I'm going on a bit about it, but, but Bhakti, you know what I think was speaking in, along those lines about, well, the Christians have identified, you know, something value to Sakya, but, so we have that there. Bhakti Vinodaku was, I would say, um, while pursuing his own spirituality, um, compelled by the core uh, ideas of Christianity more than he was any other of the of the, of the world's uh, religions, but then coming in touch with Vaishnavism through Chaitanya Charitamrita, then he, he thought this is this this core idea is, is developed fully in, in in in. Of course, he was speaking about Gaudi Vaishnavism. I think he would say the same thing. It more developed in, in Vaishnavism and further developed in, in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. In, in Vaishnavism, we put a face on God. A lot of times in Christianity, it said he doesn't have a face. Uh, we, I don't mean to make that in a cartoonish, you know, sense, but that no one's seen the face of God, uh, that he's beyond vision, you know, 
is the way we would speak about it beyond beyond the ken of the of the of the senses. Atashi Krishna Namari Naba Vidgrayamindri Sevan Mukeji Bado Swayamabas Pratila. So the, what is the what is the senses perception? They're driven by the enjoying spirit within us to enjoy the objects of the senses. But if we develop through nam the serving disposition, then the senses are transformed and have the capacity to see God. So, anyway, so, so on and so forth. So, back to your question. Yeah, but it's so interesting that you mentioned this. Thank you so much. Um, so. Sorry, going back to what you just said. Um, so, but in like, so like there are some Muslims and Christians who also say that God is like their best friend. So I could see that there is like Sakya Aras yeah. also in these traditions. And, um, yeah. when some people say that, oh, Holy Father, could this be, uh, the parental rasa like in reverse? I mean, comparisons are always like apples and pears, right? So is it, is it okay to, to say that? Well, when you say, oh, Holy Father, um, This is the opposite, as you said, as you said, it's in reverse. But if we, if we look at Rupa Goswami's, um, Vasta, um, doctrine, um, he has a place for the reverse, but it's not Vatsalya, it's Dasya, a form of Dasya. For example, Krishna has sons in Dwarka um, with the queens. These sons have a relationship with Krishna as their father. Um, so this is a type of dasya rasa hmm, that the child has with the parent, whereas the batsalya comes from the parent to the child because the parent is loving the child as a child. So I don't think the Holy Father idea, that's more of a form of dasya than it is a form of batsalya. So I don't think, you know, if you want to look for batsalya somewhere in Christianity, you'd have to go to the cradle. Hmm? Uh, uh, alone in a manger, you know, how's it go? <laughs> uh, no crib for a bear. <laughs> the baby Lord Jesus is lying his head or whatever on Mary's lap. So, uh, I'm a cat, I was a Catholic boy, so, um, you know, and that's a Christmas carol, you know, uh, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. So th- this is at least in, 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 in Mary and Joseph, We find a, a prakash, a, a, a window in the, in the, in the, in the prakat leela of Jesus, right? Uh, wherein there's an expression of Matsalya for him. So through the Jesus avatar, it's, it's, it's possible to enter that prakash, we could say, and love him mm-hmm. in that way. You know, there, there is, of course, uh, there are, of course, some saints who, in Christianity, Teresa of, of Avila, Uh, I think uh, comes to mind who have this idea of romantic uh, being the being the wife of Jesus, married to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Which has obviously romantic overtones. There was a time in Poland I heard in which the Polish um, Catholic, I believe, tradition brought a legal case against the the the, the uh, ISKCON. And Hare Krishna's, um, for them being some type of illicit, uh, you know, sect, uh, deviant sect and so forth. And uh, one of my godbrothers, um, went to court and argued the case 
And one of the points they made was that this Krishna has 16,000 wives, you know, they call him God, you know, we can't have this in our country, you know. And so he said, well, um, uh, I think he put a nun on the stand and said, what's that ring on your finger? And of course, it was that, uh, in that particular sect, the nuns wore the ring on the finger as they, they had to become the brides of Jesus. And how many nuns are there in your, uh, in, in all over the world? <laughs> you know, more than 16,000. So he won the case. The case was dismissed in that way. But, um, aware of this, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati who was in touch with, uh, Christian missionaries from, from Europe, um, at the time the British occupied, uh, India, he, made the point that this romanticism, if you will, spiritual romanticism is a relationship with Jesus, who's the son, who in our religion is the guru figure, that doesn't equate to the same thing that we're speaking about in terms of a relationship with God. And I think he could come back on that and say, well, he's, a, he's the avatar of God in this form with whom you could have that kind of relationship and let it be you can go to jesus loka and be the bride of jesus uh, and therefore you have madhuri rasa satsali rasa sakya rasa and dasya rasa in christianity but hmm, these ideas these concepts are fully developed within vaishnavism and gaudi vaishnavism in particular hmm. but that's the way i would would look at that. It's, it's very nice to talk about it uh, along those lines. Maybe hmm? yeah, I can meet your interfaith group at some time. Make, well, you can make some points for, for me too. Yeah, right? Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we, 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 we see that in our perspective, God has any number of faces. Sankhi had said about his avatars. That means uncountable. So they're not just the ones that are listed in the Bhagavatam. And Krishna says in the Gita that Gedaya Hidarmasya Glanit Bhavati Bhata Bhutanama Dharma Sadatmanam Sujamiham. Prutuna Sayan Sadunam Vinashaya Yuskam Dharma Samstapanartaya. Sambalami, you gay you gay. I come age after age, millennium after millennium, to establish Dharma. And Bhakti Minotakura in one of his commentaries on the Gita, which I think he has two, says, and this does not pertain only to India. Also in other places. He will appear relative to the cultural circumstances and, and, and teach. And if you see his commentary, you can see, see there he's obviously referring to Muhammad and Jesus, hmm? uh, as Shaktivesh avatars of the Godhead. Um, so, uh, this is the generous and broad side, if you will, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism that's, that's very much brought out in, in Bhaktivinoda Party Bar. And not at the cost of the deep internal uh, side um, and prospect that we find within Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So um, there we have authentic spirituality, right, appearing in other cultures through avatars that are, you know, relative to those those cultures. And um, there's Given that theological perspective of ours, there's no argument against the idea that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a face of God in Vaikuntha that, uh, you know, corresponds with, the, with the Jesus. And there, 
Mary's there loving him. And we don't have too many. But lack in Christianity is, is there a sadhana by which I can enter into that moment and be a follower of Mary? Mary, right, the mother of Jesus. Um, blessed, is, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. We, we to bow our head when we say, blessed. Uh, how's that prayer go? I used to like that one. It was to Mary. Uh, Mary, mother of Jesus, blessed is thy fruit. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Anyway, it's a beautiful uh, prayer to Mary. Uh, we, there's one. You know, we, we could build a sadhana, help them build a sadhana for this. You know, if you want to enter into the cradle, Leela of Jesus and by Kuntha, you know, this prayer has is, is the main prayer, you know, for that. Um, and then if you want, Dasya, that's obvious, there's so many, if you want to have Batsalya, we, we could help them to develop the idea so that they could enter into uh, um, Jesus' loka within Vaikuntha. It's, it's possible. Why not? I think Thomas Merton, the Catholic theologian and monk, was was looking for something like that when he went east. And interestingly, he was educated by a Gaudiya Vaishnava named Mahanam Brat Brahmacharya, um, who wrote uh, his thesis on Gaudiya Vaishnavism in comparison to Shankar and Ramanuja. I've mentioned it before. It's a very insightful text that's been published. It's entitled uh, Vaishnava Vedanta. And, and Merton was a student of his, of sorts, um, and of course, Thomas Burton also uh, lived into the time of Prabhupada and endorsed Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita. But it's unfortunate that um, he didn't have a little more association. To, I would love to have talked to him as we're talking now about about such. And imagine if we could get that incorporated into into Catholicism, if you will. Uh, that would be fantastic. Jesus. Jesus Kijai. So, uh, do you have any further <laughs> questions? Jai. Um, yes, I do have two, but maybe we just uh, talk about one question. Uh, it's kind of like more urgent. Um, so I do okay. have a friend. So it's like a question um, about which uh, practice would you recommend for somebody who's into non-dualism? So I have a friend. He's into like Vipassana um, and like the whole Buddhist thing um and he was actually asking me for like more practices like what more can he do so i was like uh, telling him about like krishna and personal philosophy and that you know i couldn't recommend him like a non-dual practice because like this is you know it's it's not my goal of life you know so um but still i was wondering what can i like recommend him like can i just say well maybe chant om um and what other ways are there besides maybe like sound meditation to kind of you know um um let him cross the bridge from the impersonal to the personal yeah because he he is well, not that interested in like a, a personal manifestation of divinity yet so yeah i was wondering thank you first of all we're also non-dualists in that um The Bhagavatam describes our ideology, our, our ideology as Advaigyan Tattva, which means non-dual, uh, consciousness. Um, but what we say is that, um, that non-dual ultimate reality is at the same time, uh, variegated in the way it expresses itself. 
So there's one non-dual reality that expresses itself in a variety of ways. And um, and while we are one with it, we are also an aspect of it, in that sense, different from it. Like a blue lotus, to use a Ramanuja perspective, well, uh, the blue and the lotus are inseparable, but they're different at the same time. Or if you take heat and light, they're aspects of fire mm-hmm. that you can't separate from the fire, but they're not fire. They are fire and they're not fire, right? If you have heat, if you have fire, you have heat and light. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the heat and light are the energy of fire and the fire is the energetic. So there's ways to talk to uh, a non-dualist about a non-dual idea that um, at the same time, includes some variety to it. Uh, um, so from a, just from a philosophical point, that's interesting. And then um, um, I would I would say that, you know, uh, well, I would say there are many schools of non-dualism that feel that there is a necessity for some form of bhakti in order to attain the non-dual reality. Therefore, they do bhakti. For example, chanting, they chant Krishna's name in order to attain non-duality because it's said in the scriptures that bhakti is, is extremely efficacious and easy. It conforms with our natural material tendencies to interact with things and so forth. So bhakti as a means to a non-dual impersonal reality is very efficacious um, in comparison to trying to uh, go that course without worship. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we're emotional by nature. We, we, we tend to regard others, whether they be sports figures or, uh, you know, uh, heroes of the um, you know, superheroes, Batmans, or 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 or, or, or uh, movie stars, or this is just a natural tendency amongst us. There are people who, amongst us, who have extraordinary qualities and things in nature that are very extraordinary that stand out. Like like here at Adarya, the redwoods. You know, so Krishna says in the Gita, among you know, in California, among the trees, I am the redwoods, right? Among bodies of water are in the ocean. You stand on the shore of the ocean. It's just like vast and so forth. So this is very natural to humans. And so bhakti is is very conducive as a practice for humans because it takes in this human tendency. And even if you think, well, in the end, I am the redwood. <laughs> I am the ocean. I am the real, ultimate reality that these are just expression of or remind me of even if you think that to try to think your way into that if you will is difficult but to do bhakti to attain that hmm, is not what we do but it's obviously easier and this is mentioned in the gita so to chant krishna nam for example Hare krishna you could chant krishna mantra, Hare krishna mantra and just focus on the mantra the mantra the mantra the mantra even with an ideal to attain Sayuja Mukti, a non-dual, you know, reality, and you would be taking into consideration your human nature, 
and working with it rather than you know uh, against it like you know if you want to say okay um um this is good that is bad but that's both good and bad are just just illusion um hot or cold illusion so i should expose myself to extreme hot and realize it's only illusion expose myself to extreme cold and realize that it's only an illusion that's difficult to do but if i can do things that are favorable for krishna and avoid things that are unfavorable for krishna that's a duality i have a new you know frame of reference of what's favorable and what's not that's easier to conform to by which i can transcend the duality um so, for example, you know, if you live in Northern Europe and it's cold in the morning, you get up to serve the deity anyway, and because it's favorable. So your criterion of what's good or bad, hot or cold, is not arising out of your mind, which is producing the dualities. This is getting a little complicated, but but it's arising out of uh, another criterion. It's favorable for Krishna. It's unfavorable for Krishna. So I do it, and therefore I transcend the dualities of the mind. Hmm? What I'm saying to you is that bhakti as a practice is a lot more friendly to the human condition, and it's wise to adopt it on that basis, even if through it your objective is to attain an impersonal form of of, of, of realization. And furthermore, hmm, at least from the Hindu canon and all its sacred texts, it's very clear that without some measure of bhakti, one can't attain that anyway, because there is a God. Without grace on that side, even if you say, well, ultimate reality, I'm one with the ultimate reality, but I don't realize that now. Therefore, let me petition the ultimate reality to do what I cannot do. Show me the grace by which I can overcome the illusion that I myself, you know, I don't have the means to do hmm? something like that. So this is, a, this is some some sense of bhakti. Hmm? If I think ultimate reality is real, it must be more than what I am as a person. It must have more than at least what I have and beyond the limitations of my material personality. So let me petition. Ultimate, let me let me let me pray to ultimate reality that I can overcome the illusion that I'm different from him. That, that would be a, a way to, way to frame it, perhaps. Anyway, good luck with that one. Yeah, thank you, Hare Krishna. Okay, okay, Hare Krishna. So I have just a couple of minutes. It took a long time with that, but I think it was interesting. So, anything else, briefly? That was Impressing. it. Uh, that was it for, was the, it for the questions. questions. Sorry, what okay. was that? But if anybody has questions in the virtual sangha, please uh, voice your question. Guru Maharaj pronouns, it's Omkar. I kind of wanted to um, carry on with what Krishna Kanaya was saying there. You know, there's this verse in Bhagavatam that kind of gets me hung up a little bit. It, it's about the... Um, Somebody practicing bhakti having gone through jnana and karma marks already. So, mm-hmm. 
taking that bhakti is is um, spontaneous. Um, how are we to see that? How, how can anybody be influenced by bhakti if they haven't gone through those two two stages already? Which two stages sense? again? Karma and Gyan, having all that knowledge. How can okay. anybody be influenced by bhakti if they haven't gone through karma and Gyan? Yeah. Like, would it be to preach somebody we know that they have impersonal background, like they're inter- interested in Buddhism? I guess we could never know whether they've gone through. Is that what what's behind it? We can never know what somebody has gone through in their lifetimes. Well, I'm not clear on that really on your question, but I'll start to give an answer and 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 see if it addresses your question. First of all, bhakti is transcendent, right? Um, so it's a post-liberated status, ultimately, right? So it's very uh, high, but it's also very generous. Hmm? So bhakti comes to us um, through sadhu sangha, right? And sadhu sangha does is it, the nature of sadhu sangha is it doesn't discriminate who to give bhakti to or who not to give bhakti to. In fact, a great devotee who's moving in this world only under the influence of Krishna's internal potency, a mahatma, uh, wherever he or she walks or goes, uh, is is a blessing. Um, one time, um, my godbrothers. One of my godbrothers made a point that he was at, at a place where probably was going to speak or reside or something at a hotel for a short period of time. So he pulled up in the car and the doorman opened the door and Prabhupada, of course, came out. And so his realization was this godbrother's mind that that doorman is opening doors all year long. How many millions of doors he opened? He just opened the right door because by opening that door and consciously or unconsciously serving Prabhupada, Hmm? Because of Prop, who Prabhupada was, then um, he was touched uh, by Bhakti. Hmm? So he didn't have any, any. Uh, he, he he could. He, he didn't have. He wasn't a jnani. He probably wasn't even on the karma marg, if you will. He might not have even been a religious person, um, but he could be touched by Bhakti. So Bhakti being. Uh, generous has the capacity to touch people and influence people um, who have not tread the path of karma and gyan. Now, if they tread the path of bhakti, they take it up. We say that one can take up bhakti if they have faith in bhakti um, alone, uh, because the power of bhakti doesn't require that you have other things in place in order to practice. You don't have to be a celibate, for example practice bhakti, but to practice jnana or astanga yoga, you have to. Mm-hmm. So there's a prerequisite that one has to follow in order to become qualified for jnana or for yoga. So in the Gita, for example, Krishna speaks about nishkam karma. You do karma, which in that system is following the varnashram dharma according to your caste, without attachment to the fruits, which purifies the heart, enables you in due course to be able to sit and lead a contemplative life, which Yoga, Stanga Yoga, and Gyan are ultimately um, examples of. Hmm? So, um, Bhakti, by contrast, you can take up the chanting of Bhakti by seeing the devotees becoming attracted to them and chanting. Hmm? 
Um, uh, so, uh, uh, there's no prerequisite that you have to meet other than just faith in the name. And of course, now when you take that up, you will grow and you'll make progress. And the way in which that progress will start to show up is that the kind of progress that would, you would have made in karma marg, you will find that you're making. The kind of progress you would have made in yoga or gyan marg, you'll find that is coming. And in due course, you'll find the frame is coming as well. Does that help? Yeah, but I'm still having a hard time harmonizing. Like, how do you know the the, the verse I mean from Bhagavatam? I think it's on the third chapter, but I I really forgot which one. Where it says that that a person who is is now doing bhakti is to be seen having gone through those two stages prior to to having taken up bhakti, having gone through gyan and, and karma. Okay, okay, that's a different, a little bit different. I think what what is meant there is that the goal, properly understood, the goal of Karma Marg, the goal of Gyan Marg, the goal of all the scriptures is, is, is ultimately what it culminates in is love for Krishna. Hmm? This is what the scriptures are pointing to, love of God, right? Hmm? He has different forms, Krishna, Narayan, Narsingh, and so forth. Love of God. This is what they're pointing to. So, and in the in Gaudi perspective, and it's well reasoned and supported by the scripture, um, uh, that form of Krishna is, is, is Swayam Bhagavan. So that would be the fullest measure of what the scriptures are pointing to. So if someone is chanting Hare Krishna and wants to love Krishna, then they've, they've realized something that a, one in the Karma Mark or Gyan Mark may not have even realized yet as to the goal. Hmm? They've, they've understood the goal. Hmm? And, and, and independently of the karma mark or the gyan mark. And in that sense, they've passed through karma and gyan because going through karma is meant and gyan is meant to result in that. They've already got that result. Now they've got that result in an immature way, not in the mature sense of the term, hmm? but immaturely. It hasn't, it hasn't fully fructified, but here you can find somebody in the Karma and the Gyanmark who, who don't necessarily even see it as the goal. If that's the goal of these two, ultimately, and, and I decide I'm just going to chant Hare Krishna, then what need do I have for Karma and Gyan? In one sense, I've already surpassed them. Hmm? That's, that's the idea that's being presented there. Um, but as I said, as you actually chant Hare Krishna from that position, then the results that you would get from the karma mark or the gyan mark will start to show up in you to the extent that they're not in you all already. So um, it's it's not that they've practiced systematically the whole karma mark and the whole gyan mark already in previous lives, and therefore they're chanting Hare Krishna, although they're an atheist and they just started, uh, you know, they got converted today or something or whatever. They still have bad habits. So then it doesn't make sense, right? And I, I think that's what you're dealing with. But if you look at it in, in the way that I'm speaking about it, I think that that's um, what what the text is saying. They haven't gone systematically through it, but here, this is the goal. They've already understood that. They're, so they're pursuing it directly. Hmm? So they don't have need for karma and gyan. But then again, the results that would have come from systematically practicing those paths will come in them before 
the frame comes in. So they're they're there, but not in the mature sense. Hmm. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, that makes so much more sense. Thank you, Gurmaraj. Haribo. Okay, glad I could help. Haribo. Guys, so nice to be with all of you. And uh, I hope to be here next week as well.